you know, Jesus can be really awkward. Humanly speaking, sometimes, actually, if we're honest, he can be a nuisance. Because just when we think that we've got things sorted out and we kind of have got a handle on who he is and what he was about and what he is about and his kingdom and everything else, we read something or we hear something or we sing something and the whole picture that we have of Jesus, if not blown apart, is certainly, you know, it begins to get a wee bit kind of, you know, out there, out the box, out of comfort zone, out of what we thought we knew. And I certainly have found, as I've been reading through Luke's gospel, because of what we've been doing here in church this morning, and especially the last couple of weeks as I've been looking at some of the parables, and I think some of the folks would find on Wednesday afternoon and on Friday, and Thursday evening at the men's group, sometimes you read things and you think, hmm, what's going on? Who is Jesus? And of course, we've seen as we've looked at this gospel over these past weeks, over these past couple of months, that really, of course, is the question that Luke is wanting to both provide and create and raise up, but also the question that he wants to be able to answer. I read again those opening verses of Luke's gospel of why did Luke write this gospel? Here again, what he says right at the beginning of his gospel and indeed the book of Acts. Many, he says, have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, that is, people like ourselves. Matthew writes to a Jewish audience, people who were steeped in the Old Testament. Mark's providing a gospel tract, in a sense, the very first gospel, really just wanting to get the message across to the church that's growing. John, at the end of his life, is reflecting more theologically and philosophically about the Word, the eternal Word, that takes frail flesh and lives among us, full of grace and truth. Luke is writing to people living in an empire, an empire where Caesar is Lord. What Rome says is the rule, and people need to abide by it but also to an empire where people wasn't they weren't religious. There was all sorts of gods, all sorts of spirits, all sorts of philosophies that people bought into and gave their devotion over to. And in this mixture and mix-up of his society and world, he is seeking as a servant of the word, he describes himself, to bring the truth of Jesus to bear. The truth of Jesus who is bigger than we could ever possibly imagine. The Jesus who takes frail flesh, the Christmas story, and comes amongst us. But the one who is also the Lord, the King of kings, the mighty God, before whom Caesar and all his pomp and circumstance will fall before and will ultimately perish. Remember, a number of years ago, it is now having the privilege of visiting Greece and a wee stop off in Turkey. And we went to Ephesus. 
and to the amphitheater in Ephesus, where in the book of Acts we're told Paul was taken, and a massive crowd were there being for his death, because they were challenged by the good news of Jesus who broke through people's preconceived notions about God. And they were going to kill him for that, just as Jesus warned that those who bear witness to him in our contemporary world walk the way of challenge and reaction and opposition at times, persecution. And yet the gospel story, or rather Luke's story, tells us that God mightily vindicated Paul and he was delivered. And as we stood in that ruins of that amphitheater and saw the, the ruins of that ancient city, an impressive city, with all these great public buildings still there. I've told you before, the Odeon was there. It wasn't the cinema in Renfield Street. It was the original theater and all these great buildings. But now ruins, we sang, he is Lord, he is Lord. He has risen from the dead, he is Lord. Majesty, majesty worship his majesty, all the world's pomp and show knows nothing before the glorious things of the King of Kings, Jesus, and his kingdom. But should we get overly comfortable thinking we've got that sorted out, then we read parables, the parables of Jesus that challenge us. And so this morning, we're going to read through some of that. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And last Sunday, and again, we did something a wee bit different, and we had time ourselves to read and reflect and think. The previous stories, the parable of the lost son, the parable of the lost coin, and, and then before that, the, the mustard seed, the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast and the narrow door. These pictures, that, and that was interesting. I got, thank you for the feedback. I got some, from some folks who felt re, just reading it, reflecting that, that a door was opened into fresh understanding of what it is to be part of God's kingdom and a follower of Jesus. So this morning, we're going to pick up on that and read a couple of or more than a couple of these parables, then my dear brother in Christ, Ian, is going to take the service next Sunday. Myself and Elizabeth are going on holiday, and then, God willing, the following Sunday, we begin our journey towards Easter. But let's hear God's word from Luke chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. And the manager said to him, said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. And the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. You'd be wishing that was somebody at the petrol station, wouldn't you? We deal with him, yes. And the master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if, you're not be, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And let's pause there. It was amusing. I hope I don't offend the afternoon meeting on the Wednesday or the folks on Thursday night, but I found it quite amusing as we read, not this parable, but another one um, later on, just a few chapters on, or just a chapter so on, which, like this one, raises perhaps sometimes more questions than appears to answer. Is Jesus here commending ruthless business practices? Is he encouraging us to be really scheming and shrewd in the sense of being a chancer, a bit of a wide boy, somebody who knows how to make a good sideline and to win friends and influence people by using his position of influence of power. Well, right away, of course, as Christians, we know that that is not what the gospel or the kingdom is all about. And indeed, the thing that helps us to determine all that we're reading is actually those verses that Jesus used um, with the, the crowd, when he said, with the Pharisees, rather, when he said in verse 15, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And then earlier on, when he says, no one can serve two masters, either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so right from the very beginning, that has to be the, the fulcrum in which we understand everything that Jesus says and goes on to say in these surrounding verses. That principle. Who is King Jesus? Well, he's the boss. He is the Lord. He is the one who calls us to love the Lord our God with our heart and soul and strength and might and to love our neighbors as ourselves, not to use them in some kind of scheme in order to safeguard our own position. But what Jesus is saying here, and it's a good lesson not just for this parable, but for a number of the parables, we're all familiar with the ones that are well known, and ministers and commentaries often jump over the lesson. These ones are a wee bit more tricky. What we need to remember is that there is a main theme, a main issue. And often, in these parables, he uses things that people can relate to, people can understand. The parable of the seed and the sower is one of the more obvious ones because people were aware, aware of farmers scattering their seed and everything else. And here Jesus speaking to the crowd, which included people like the Pharisees, who outwardly were very kind of, you know, religious and righteous, but actually were often the ones who, because they were so involved in the life of the temple, made much money. Hence the reason why in Palm Sunday Jesus enters into the temple and overturns the tables of the money changers and it causes such a reaction because the Pharisees had quite a nice wee sideline there selling all these pigeons and duff birds and dear knows what else for all these things. Jesus knows 
what's going on. And he's saying to not only to them, but the people round about, you look round about you. And you see what goes on. You learn lessons from what you see. Isn't that true when we're bringing up the children? And how easily, how easily the influences of the world begin to press in. I think of our little six-month granddaughter, and she's got such a happy wee heart. Why is that? Well, because she's surrounded by love, surrounded by a family. But me and the other doting grandfather last night at Gregor's wedding were just saying, but wait till she gets out to the big wide world. Protective already. She's only six months. But it's true, isn't it? And Jesus knows what these influences are. He recounts a story here. Yes, it's probably to be slightly exaggerated, but somebody who was shrewd, who the world would call wise, and who used his position to earn influence with the folks in the company so that when the boss came along, he would say, well, actually, he was going to sack you, but actually... You're heading for promotion. And what is Jesus saying? Should we learn? Should we try to, to, to be equally scheming? No. But this is what he's trying to say to us, what he is saying to us. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Verse 10. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? How we interact, and all of these things we're looking at to speak about this, how we interact, how we deal with the things of the world tell so much about where our heart and where our true loyalty really lies. It's sad to say that often Christians, at least professing Christians, in their working life and their business life don't always live out that kingdom dynamic. They're not trustworthy. They wouldn't say they were dishonest, but they're scheming. Unfortunately, we know of situations, I sit in those situations in the past, where Christians who ran businesses didn't care for their workers, weren't responsible for the, the, the support of those who were in need. Oh, they turned up at church on Sunday with very large Bibles, usually very large cars and very expensive suits. And we're all very affirming of the truths. But when it came to the dynamics and the realities of life, they weren't trustworthy. What God had given them and the responsibilities and opportunities of that were not well used. And actually were a bad example of the kingdom. Just to help us to reflect on that, some verses earlier on where Jesus brings the point of that. From everyone, Luke 12 and verse 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been trusted with much, much more will be asked. Wisdom in the kingdom involves us thinking carefully about what we do, of how we react and respond to the opportunities given to us. This is particularly true in working life. How we steward the resources we've been blessed with, and how through it all we seek to bear witness to the one who ultimately is our boss 
not the company manager, not the person who's our line manager, but King Jesus. We need to be wise. We need to be careful. We need to think about what we do and in whom we invest. Let's read on. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the last stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, and now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus turns things upside down. The kingdom challenges the values of the world. That's why he says what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. He's talking there about what people's priorities, what people look to to bring them security, satisfaction, salvation in life. And Jesus challenges that challenges the spirit of our own age. He challenges the spirit that many of us, perhaps in the past, and sadly to say many of our children and grandchildren, have bought into. That that's what brings happiness. Wealth, position, status. Yes, living a good life. Nobody's saying we should be running about banging, bashing the head of old grannies or robbing backs. Living a good life. But at the end of the day, it's my life. And this is what I have. And this is who I am. And this is what I will achieve. And Jesus says, you think? Just wait. The tables are turned in the kingdom. Here's a rich man dressed in purple and fine linen, living in luxury every day. And in the context of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he obviously was, to a degree at least, religious. He turned up at church every Sunday. He was perhaps even an office bearer within the congregation. 
of the synagogue. He was well known in the community for being a leading light and a wealthy person. But every day as he walked past to do whatever he was doing, here was that beggar outside. And you can just imagine, oh, look at that poor soul. But at the end of the day, you know, I've just seen these nice laurel bushes planted in pots here. And this thing lying out the front is a wee bit kind of, you know, can you not just move over a wee bit, you know? When I come into my drive, my gate's open, it's really a bit inconvenient to have this half-dead body lying outside. And so we're told that even the dogs came and licked his sores. But at the end of time, because Jesus is using picture language here, at the end of time, after the judgment, he discovers that while he lived in a palace on earth, he's now in hell or Hades where this poor soul, where he had no place to lay his head, is now with God. Why? Because obviously the one who was lying outside only had God to look to and to trust in. Whereas the man in the palace, well, he had it all. And surely that would secure his future. It didn't. And worse than that, when he, and again, this is just a story, of course, but when he realizes this, Abraham, the example of faith, tells him, well, you're stuck there. And when Lazarus, or rather, when the rich man asks for some special sign or some special manifestation that will cause him to, his family to think more wisely about how they should live, he's simply told, well, they've got their Bibles. That's all they need. And even if someone is raised from the dead, it still won't convince them. See how pride darkens and dampens the soul. See how the things of the world and the agenda of the world and the values of the world so seep in that it distorts a very understanding of who we are and how we relate to our creator God. And see how Jesus in these parables challenges us to think and to act differently. James, writing later on, speaking to the church, warns the church that professions of faith are all very well, but that has to be demonstrated in kingdom values. Let me just read to you some verses from James chapter 1. Verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and the religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Then later on in chapter 2 and verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? 
In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodgings to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. We live in a day, my friends, where there is a crying need for the dynamic of the kingdom to be seen and who we are, and how we conduct ourselves, and the values and the things that permeate through our life and are communicated in our conversation and in our conduct. We live in a day where the values that were held in the past in business and public life of a degree of honesty and probity and everything else are rapidly disappearing. And this person and that person is on the make and thinks nothing about it. God's calling for God's people in this day is to demonstrate the faith and the wise and shrewd godly living where the values of the kingdom are at the core of our character. And we have to confess that's not always the case. Well, let's read on in this section of Luke's gospel. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Jesus said to his disciples, notice now he's speaking to his disciples, okay, rather than the crowd and the Pharisees and the, the folks round about. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he replied, if your faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Very true, isn't it, that the greatest challenge of living out the life of Jesus is actually not always in the wider world where we work, although that can be difficult or the wider community involvements, although that can be challenging. But it's with our friends and with our families, with those that we have close relationships with. And that should not surprise us. Jesus says things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. That's a very realistic statement about the reality of relationships. It's based, of course, supremely on the fact that what happened, what was the sign of the 
fall in the Garden of Eden, the very first sign of the fall of the Garden of Eden when first the woman, then the man took the apple or the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate it. What was the first sign? They fell out. It was her fault, no mine's. They started blaming each other. And that relationship that was meant to be a blessing became toxic. And so relationships, how we relate to people, how we show that in our conduct is so central to the kingdom. And supremely, that's what Jesus is getting on about in many ways in these stories that we're reading this morning. It's how we demonstrate that. That is the challenge. You know the old phrase, you can choose your friends but not your relations. And sometimes that's not true, but hasten to add my brother-in-law, sister-in-law, and nephew sitting up in the balcony there, hasten to add. But we all know that it can be challenging. And sometimes the way we deal with things is we simply avoid things and, and just say nothing. But even at the wedding yesterday, not with Elizabeth's side of the family, but with my side of the family, hope my brother's not listening to this, there are challenges. Let's just say I'm conscious we're live streaming. And I saw and actually hurt me of the damage that's caused when things aren't right in a family. So I'm going to have to do something about it. So pray for me when I phone my brother later on today. Because that is wrong. And Jesus here is challenging us, all of us, on that most delicate, but definitive sign of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're always goody-two-shoes. And interesting enough, the love that the Bible speaks about and that really undergives so much of what he's saying isn't some sort of whitewash that just kind of, you know, it's a love that faces up to realities. For instance, when something is done against us, they come and they repent, and we are called to forgive them. In fact, we're told that even if they do it seven times and seven times again, seven times seven, we're meant to say, that's fine. Remember, in other Gospels, when that's mentioned, Peter throws his hands up. I think Peter was the kind of guy that in a family could have been quite lively. <laughs> and he said, well, Lord, really, come on now, we're a bit kind of extreme here. And yet it's that forgiving spirit, that grace of God that we as his people know that's meant to be seen and how we demonstrate, hasten to add, as people repent and say, sorry. Sorry is the hardest word to say. Was that a song with Elton John? It was. Yeah. I thought it was. But it is. It is. Interesting enough, he wrote that song. Just remind, this is not my sermon, but just again to be there. He wrote that song, and if any of you ever watched, I'd commend to you a film about his early life. He needed to say sorry, and family members needed to say sorry to him. Damaged him greatly. He knew that it's the hardest thing to say. And yet that undergirds our calling to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and might and to love our neighbor and that pesky relative as ourselves. And care 
care in what we do and what we say so that we do not cause a little one to stumble. Let's read on. Verse 7, as we draw to a close. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait in me while I eat and drink? After that you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Let's be honest. As human beings, when we've done something, they're to call us good. When perhaps we have forgiven somebody who's done something against us. When we have reached out that helping hand to the man, the poor needy soul, and we've, we've done it. We don't do it. And to be honest, I know we're not doing it saying, oh, look at me, look how good we are. But let's be honest, after we've done it, there's a wee bit of it that says, oh, smiles on people's faces tell me I'm not the only one that feels like that. That's our human nature, which is fragile and not always all that it should be. But here Jesus is telling us all that we've been reading about this morning, and it's no easy. I mean, far easier. I was joking with Graham on Thursday night. Far easier just to jump over these bits and get on to, you know, Easter and the cross and everything else, you know. But these are the teachings about the kingdom, so we shouldn't be looking. We should be looking at them. All these things, including the parables we looked at last Sunday, at least the parable of the lost son and everything else, undergird that we're only doing what we're meant to do, what we're called to do, what we're commissioned to do when we love our neighbor as ourselves. This is love. John tells us. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us. And how did he demonstrate that love? Well, John tells us he demonstrated love in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He first loved us and gave his son to be the means by which our sins forgiven. All of us are debtors of God's grace. All of us have a manager, a boss, and that's Jesus. That's not Caesar. That's not any power or principality in this world. That's not somebody in our circle or an environment. That is Jesus. Who we are, how we live, and how that scene is accountable to him. He is watching. And if we think, or we fall into the trap of thinking, that by our actions we're going to secure brownie points, when it comes to that final day, Jesus makes it clear that there's no brownie points in the kingdom. We have simply done our duty. I don't know about you, but I find that quite challenging. <laughs> it would be very easy to jump over these parables. But look at the context, and we'll see that in a fortnight's time. The context is Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. Why is he journeying to Jerusalem? He's not going there on a holiday. He's not going there to speak at a big conference. 
He's not going there to see family and have a little, you know, time of rest, R and R. He's going there knowing what was going to happen. That the crowds who welcomed him would shout for his death. That the religious leaders who outwardly looked the part, but inwardly were full of sin and deception, would scheme and plan and plot for his death. And he freely did that. This is our king. Not in pomp and circumstance, but in humility and in brokenness. And he has bought you and me with that great price, the price of his blood. And so before him, we are all unworthy servants. Bought by his grace, ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven so that we might live for him and die in him for the rest of our days. That's our calling. That's our Christ, and we worship.